You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This is side two of our look at the Kentucky Goblins of 1955. If you have not listened to side one, please fast forward this tape to the end and flip it over to start with side one. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. My co-host, Dr. Karen Stolzno, will be back soon. Last week, we introduced the story of the Kentucky Goblin Attack of 1955. In that introduction, I told you the story of how the Sutton family of Kelly, Kentucky, claimed that one hot August night, their tiny farm had been attacked by mysterious beings. In the aftermath of that event, the story went out on news wires and radio broadcasts, and soon their little farm was overrun with the curious. But after days with no further signs of the invaders, the community seemed to turn on these poor farmers and soon they were reticent to repeat their story. Since those original events, there have been many theories on what happened that night. Some believe aliens attacked the farm. Some believe the whole thing was a hoax. If you look at the case on Wikipedia, you may find an entry that suggests that owls and alcohol are at the root of the story. We'll be taking up that version in more depth in part three of our coverage. But for now, let's look at the research beneath that version of events. And to do that, we need to talk with the researcher behind it, the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry's lead investigator, Joe Nickel. Joe Nickel is one of the world's most famous skeptics and is a paranormal investigator who's always tried to use the scientific method as the basis for his research. We've had Joe on Monster Talk several times. And once again, we've linked to his many books in our show notes at monstertalk.org. Lately, Joe's been calling himself a paranatural naturalist. He explores the paranormal, but tries to find natural explanations. In 2005, some 50 years after the events at Kelly, Kentucky, Joe was invited to investigate the case, and we'll talk about his findings in this in-depth interview. Monster Talk. Welcome back. Uh, it's, it's great to have you here. You've uh, been someone whose career I've followed for a long time and who I try to emulate whenever I can, when it's appropriate. <laughs> well, I think there are three or four of you in the world. Yeah, it, <laughs> it's a rare it's a rare group. It, it is and a tiny it, group. Yeah. <laughs> and if you would just form a fan club, it would, you know, it would please me greatly. But that, that, no, seriously, I I have had a long career. I'm um Approaching, I guess, by uh, 2019 will be my 50th year doing what I do, and uh, let's hope I make it yeah, and beyond. Absolutely. Uh, and you, you may be the only professional monster hunter in the world who operates using scientific skepticism as your primary mode of conduct. Well, I think I, think I may be. I, I'm also maybe the only miracle detective, the only... Real ghost hunter. It's it's a motley uh, motley bunch of of personas, but uh, I sort of invented what I do, kind of like Sherlock Holmes, who told Watson, you know, that he took stock of his, you know, his pluses and minuses, and this his work was a a good fit for him, and he was 
the only one in the world. And Watson said kind of incredulously, you know, uh, what, the world's only detective? And Sherlock said, well, the world's only private consulting detective. You know, you need a few adjectives, as do I. But I've uh, I've tried to put together uh, an approach, and let's see how well it works. Yeah, let's check it out with uh, one of the more intriguing monster stories out there. Uh, I I just got through reading a, a a big stack of paperwork about this case, and uh, uh, so it's called a lot of different things. I'm I'm calling it the Kentucky Goblin case, but uh, it, the Kelly Hopkinsville case. Uh, it's probably got a lot of different. Yeah, names. it has lots of um, lots of names. Um, I I think the Goblin is a little bit. Um, you know, there's there's too much emphasis on on the drawings. Uh, the drawings are, in my opinion, not accurate. But um, we'll get to that. It's certainly a case that maybe let me say what I what I do with a case like that because I've I've done you know lots and lots and lots of of cases and I have some ideas about what what should come first and what should come much later. I try to suspend notions of belief or disbelief early on. I think it's a mistake to get too too quick to decide where something's going because then you're into confirmation bias and you're you can you know you could take this case in any of several directions and make a convincing case for it picking and choosing. I try to first look at first things first. So with with Kelly the first thing we have is we have a report of a flying saucer, and the description of it is that it was uh, a, a big, big fiery something or a big fireball, words to that effect. And when we consider that that occurred during the Perseid meteor shower and that other people were seeing meteors, I think we can be pretty sure that what was seen was a meteor. And we don't, you know, right away I'm thinking there's a an actual nucleus for the story. In other words, uh, a made-up story might not have a real meteor at the at the onset, but a real story might. So, I'm just just looking at things and I'm thinking, okay, we've got a what appears to be a meteor. And then further confirmation from that would be that it was said to have um, sort of gone over into that there gully. And that's very much like what happened at Flatwoods, West Virginia, a few years before, where some boys on a playground saw a fiery UFO apparently land on, on a hill. And they rushed up and they saw, and you know the story, they... They eventually got dark, and they they encountered a being that I have identified as a barn owl because it has very, very specific descriptors. And of all the creatures on this planet, I believe it fits the barn owl best of anything. So that's uh, I, I'm looking at at this idea of this this UFO sort of landing over in the gully. And I, that's recognizable as a very familiar illusion. People see a meteor, and it it always, I mean, there are just many of these instances where it landed just over there, usually just out of sight behind a tree line or a hill or something. And it, it looks, because it's large and sort of awesome, it just looks really close. And it looks like it landed just over there. And that's what happened, I feel quite sure, at Kelly, that uh, that was that familiar meteor illusion that we're so familiar with. And so there was no spaceship. So when I soon find critters, <laughs> I don't think they're extraterrestrial. That's not my first thought, although that was certainly... Um, the thought of the Lankfords and Taylors and Suttons and all those eight adults and three children who lived in that house or right. who were there for a time. 
And then at some point we get to starting to look at at the fanciful part uh, of the the monsters, um, plural, it was thought, that uh, something, uh, some kind of uh, humanoid or anthropomorphic-like, slightly anthropomorphic figure uh, had uh, had come from the flying saucer. And I know that a lot of skeptics are very quick to because they don't understand what's actually happening, it seems to me they're very quick to say, well, that was a hoax. And I saw that with Flatwoods, um, just as a quick side side trip, because it's, it's I think it's very relevant. Um, I was to write uh, some articles for a UFO encyclopedia some years ago, and uh, we, we agreed on things like crop circles and so forth, and, and at the end of which I said, well, are you doing anything with Flatwoods? Because I thought of that as sort of my my area. And he said, well, I've got someone who's written a piece on that. He says it was a hoax. And I said, you listen to me. If you believe anything I ever tell you, you believe that was positively not a hoax. And there was sort of silence on his... And I said, I tell you what, how about I write a piece and then you can just decide which piece you find most convincing and that's up to you, you're the editor. And my piece appeared and I never heard any more about this this hoax hypothesis. But I think the person said, oh, there couldn't be any kind of creature like this. Look, Listen to this and there's no such thing. So these people made it up. And I'd had the benefit of actually going there and among many other things, the fact that they had seen, uh, actually seen um, a flying saucer, i.e. meteor, which had been seen over three states, I knew they didn't make that up. Sure. So I, I was already willing to at least listen to, you know, and think. So I think we have to be careful. Uh, one of the, one of the pieces of evidence I had was um, one of the guys who was there that night. At the, with the sheriff and others, it's a little, very little community, and he told me he said those those people were absolutely frightened. He said the lemon boy, Gene Lemon, he said he was throwing up, and I recognized that as a sure sign of hysteria. So I I believe that they uh, they in fact had an encounter, and then I've as I say I've explained it as. Uh, that scary nocturnal creator known as the barn owl uh, came right at them with those terrible claws and a high-pitched hissing sound and just scared them to death. So if, if I look, um, look at the Kelly case, I'm looking at, okay, I think we're good with the flying saucer, and the sheriff and some of the others thought these witnesses were telling the truth. There were certainly a bunch of them. Um, you know, there were a couple of characters in there, and they were doing a lot of shooting. But uh, the I'm persuaded, to make a long story short, that uh, several things um, are going on in that story that don't sound like a hoax to me. Uh, it's got too many moving parts. It's got a lot of contradictions from one person to another, but just the kind that you get when people have actually seen something. Uh, there's some independent corroboration of some of the details. There's physical corroboration. I mean, they absolutely did shoot shoot off guns because there are shotgun pellets in the door in the frame of the window. There were holes in the screen, and I know people want to argue over some of those. Uh, I, I urge caution upon them. Um, Shotgun shells were picked up here and there, and so there was shooting. And uh, the skeptics at the time who said, "Oh, they just poked holes in the screen with a with a tobacco stick," are probably pretty pretty far off. If they had to fake the gun, the the bullet holes, if they had to fake that, why were there actual shells around? I mean, imagine a scenario where you and I are out there going to make up a story, and we say, "Hey, wait a minute." Let's shoot off our guns some, but then let's go in and 
poke holes in the screen. Yeah. Let's just put fake holes in the screen. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Besides, ultimately, um, we we don't know every detail about the shootings. Uh, there were probably, if you count them up, from um, Isabel Davis's book, um, there are certainly a number of of shots, maybe uh, eleven or more, inside and out. Probably much more. Um, some neighbors heard nothing. Others heard what sounded like a small war. Um, so we can't be very definite about all of this. But shots were fired because I know that shells were picked up inside and outside the house. I've looked closely at that, and um, so what. What really interests me about the case is to look at the creature. It, what impresses me, and, and I was pleased to find that um, my friend Brian Dunning had been impressed with uh, that. He got it from me, but he was he, I sold him on it, how many similarities there are to this case, to this creature, to the great horned owl. And there are more than people suppose, I think. And and the pictures don't. I know if you put a picture of the the goblin beside the uh, horned owl, you may think it's not very similar. But in fact, there I've listed here. I, I can go over the list a little bit quickly. Uh, at least twenty five points of similarity that I've many of which I find quite quite distinctive. And that persuades me that they were seeing a, a real creature and that it's quite terrestrial. For example, um, the great horned owl would have been in that place and time without any problem. That would have been its habitat. Um, there were never more than two creatures seen it at any time. So the fact that couple of the good old boys who were prone to um, exaggeration and uh, and um, being uh, embroidering stories or being excitable, however you want to put it, uh, there probably were a pair of creatures, and that would be um, horned owls who, who are monogamous and mate. Um, it was at night, which is, these are nocturnal creatures. And they even say specifically, and, I, and let me compliment Isabel Davis for what I think was a very good job at, from her perspective, trying to do very, you know, very difficult work under very difficult circumstances. But I find her her book very helpful. I, uh, I, I, I'm sure she's not a skeptic like me, and she's not going to buy maybe my great horned owl, but I'll do my best. But she certainly put a lot of effort into putting in detail. Yes. And so she takes the time to tell us that the, uh, that Billy Ray and uh, and uh, Lucky were the two the two main guys who were shooting him up um, that that they had noticed and and uh, uh Glennie Langford who was maybe the most sensible person there, the matriarch, the family matriarch, um, and and not given to much exaggeration. Uh, she's very clear about what she saw and things. So we, we know from these people that the, when they turned on the lights, these creatures seemed to favor the dark and to come, always were coming uh, to the house from from a dark area seeming to want darkness. And this would be consistent with a nocturnal um, creature that has very excellent uh, night uh, vision. Uh, her, her account was that the figure was uh, about two and a half feet tall. Now, there are other estimates of three feet or four feet. Um, I'm going to prefer Glennie Langford because... At two and a half feet, that's not much of an exaggeration. The uh, great horned owl could be twenty-five inches, be it, over, just just over two feet. And she seemed to be a very uh, serious, sober. Uh, she was that's trying to right, keep, she religious, keep, right? She was deeply, keep, deeply religious, 
and uh, not sophisticated. None of the people were, you know, urban sophisticates, uh, perhaps. But I don't say that disparagingly because that's the kind of country I come from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. I'm a Kentuckian, <laughs> and they're just um, unsophisticated uh, rural people. But anyway, she comes up with a figure of two and a half feet tall. Let's take that for the moment, and it had it had a large round head, and repeatedly it was said there was no neck. This is we're talking an owl here. Uh, it had large ears, so we can eliminate barn owls and barred owls because they don't have they're they're not true ears, of course. They're what are called ear tufts, but let's just call them ears because they look like ears sticking up. And they were triangular and pointed at the top, just like the great horned owls is. It had uh, this creature, or creatures, had big eyes. They were larger than a human's eyes. They were um, uh, looked like they they were round almost on the side of the head. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, unless you look at the great horned owl from the side, and you'll see how that effect would look like that. From the front, even, they have wide-spaced eyes, and they have the facial discs extend over on the left and right of, of the eyes so that they do, if, if you were not seeing things really clearly, might very well look like the eyes were way over almost to the side of the head. Uh, the eyes are, um, they said, uh, were shining or, or glowing, but, but, of course, we know whenever people say they're glowing in our world, they're talking about eye shine, was yellow eye shine. And again, that's the eye shine of the great horned owl. This is not, a, a for example, not Mothman, not uh, the barred owl I've identified as Mothman, which has this bright red shining eyes like bicycle reflectors. They said the eyes never moved. And that's that would be true for the great horned owl. It does not move its eyes. Um, they did say that it never moved its head either, and I think there might be a little mistake in there because they, they tended to think it moved its whole body, but it didn't move its eyes. Uh, the horned owl can move just its head remarkably well, but I, I always expect a few little discrepancies in, in these misidentifications because if they were exactly accurate, they probably would have said, oh, it's just an owl, but they didn't. They were misled by the idea of a flying saucer and an extraterrestrial figure, and it looked... Most people have not seen an owl at night with a little bit of hyper-extraterrestrialism <laughs> uh, uh, in the presentation. Right. So if, if we, just to go on through the list quickly, uh, long arms, twice as long as the legs. Well, of course, the... The great horned owl doesn't have arms, but look at it from the front. And they said it raised its hands nearly every time it got ready to float. It would raise its hands up over its head. I found uh, various references to that and have the page numbers. And, of course, if you look at, at, at the great horned owl, uh, from the front, its wings, you're seeing it's sort of on edge. And let me invite people to look at, at pictures of that and to look at, because they said at the ends of the arms were big hands. And the great horned owl has what looks for all the world like five fingers on the end of each wing. It's really rather striking if you've not seen that. And so it also has the claws that were mentioned. Of course, the claws aren't the hands, so there's always some little shift of that because sometimes they're describing the ends of the wings and sometimes they're describing the feet when it's on the window. Uh, but in any case, it definitely mentioned claws that got in um, Billy Ray Taylor's, uh, in his hair, right? He went out and it, it was on the roof and it, it must have touched him or something. The word talons was used a few times without being very specific, but again, I'm I'm happy to just put that language into the discussion. They said the creature walked awkwardly as if on stilts, and an awkward gait is, of course, characteristic to such an owl. 
Um, they said the legs were spindly, as spindly as broom handles, or it was stick-like. And that's, of course, uh, uh, exactly what we're expecting here with the owl. That's a perfect description of, of an owl's legs. Uh, they said it floated, but of course it put its arms up. In other words, uh, it would it floated at one point 40 feet from the roof to the fence, and uh, this this absolute silent movement is characteristic of an owl because their wings are so soft. The the flight is is noiseless; they can just glide. Uh, Which is really bad if you're a little little rodent. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. And in fact, they were they were walking around in the yard, probably partly looking in the dark areas away from lights, looking for field mice. Uh, that's what they. That's why they're walking on the ground. Um, so the floating ability referred to a few times is is significant. It's people talk about owls having just that ability. It's remarkable. Uh, the creatures, the extraterrestrial creatures, had a tendency to perch. They're described on the roof. They're described on the limb of a maple tree. They're described on a fence. So they're given to perch. And that's, again, this behavior is just so perfect for the great horned owl. Uh, they said it was um, glowing or shining, it's, but I think they're just referring to the light under parts of it, maybe being having a sheen or being caught in light. I, I can't do much with that. You know, actually, the I... pair of creatures... Sorry, it's going to say, I, I did find an article where at least one birder uh, claims that there's some evidence. He found a lot of anecdotes glow. that owls glow. I thought that was really interesting. I didn't yeah, see... Yeah, it's you know. usually... Uh, there's, a whole, there's a whole lot of information about that. I've run across it all my life, pretty much. Uh, barn owls and others are said... And there's even, in this case, uh, since you're insisting on bringing this up... Um, that one place where the uh, the creature landed, uh, the police, the sheriff, and others found a sort of a luminous spot there on the ground, which might indicate that when the animal was knocked off a fence or something, that it that it in fact left some of this glowing material. People have talked about a a fungus, but it's it's pretty scientifically doubtful. It's never really been absolutely verified. It's it's. It's somewhere along the sort of like Bigfoot. It's uh, <laughs> people report it, but it's uh, it's not been absolutely certified yet. Right, I'm skeptical but, of that uh, as well. But I, I thought it was an interesting article. I'm going to put a link to it. In the show it is interesting, yeah, and yeah. and I was particularly taken by the luminous spot on the ground. I thought that was really striking, but I I don't make anything of it for my point. It could be any of a number of other things. Something. Something rubbed off the animal, maybe some some um, of the feathers or something, and maybe there was just the sheen from the light or something, a trick of light. That there was a pair of creatures I mentioned, and it, if you read the accounts carefully, and I believe it was Glennie and maybe one other person who said, uh, yeah, they talk about there being all these, those boys do, but... But uh, really, uh, at any one time, we never saw more than two, really. Right. Maybe yep. three. And I, my count is two, and I believe there were two uh, owls. Uh, owls are territorial, and they're fearless, and they're persistent. And that's exactly the behavior that we had there. Uh, no one noticed a mouth. That's, that's as would be expected, perhaps. It had sloping <laughs> shoulders. Uh, so it, it fits the... If it's the owl, if you if you look at at a great horned owl, realize that people are kind of misperceiving what it is. But but like I've had with people doing the Flatwoods Monster and Mothman and other creatures of various kinds, uh, if you look and make a little allowance for error when people don't recognize what they're actually seeing. Um, the bits and pieces of it are often quite, quite strikingly correct, and we have multiple witnesses. Hard to pull off a hoax with this many people that would have played out this way. And again, the sheriff had um, uh, and his deputies had had thought that they seemed genuinely excited, and uh, I believe it was Billy Ray that uh, um, his. Um, 
his pulse rate was extremely high. Yeah, 140. They thought he yeah. was... Pardon? It was 140 beats uh, per minute. Yep. It's quite yeah, a, not double, that, yeah. If, if that's correct, uh, then... I, I, again, uh, you can. T- I could make a good case that it was a hoax if I were inclined to do that. But I unfortunately know too much about Great Horned Owl to find that it just would be an astonishing number of coincidences. If if, if you and I were making up a hoax about a monster because we wanted some attention or wanted to make money or do something. Uh, wouldn't we make it scary? Um, Glennie kept saying, you know, it wasn't hurting nobody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it had his hands you know, up, like, don't shoot. Yeah. In the house. <laughs> she thought when it raised its quote-unquote arms, it was sort of trying to look peaceful. And look, I come bearing no, you know, I'm raising my hands. She's putting a very old-fashioned uh, human interpretation of that. It was simply raising its its wings, I think. But I think we would want a more uh, awesome creature, maybe glowing red eyes and a fierce look, and it would be doing terrible things and attacking. And if we were making up a story, this this story has got, again, too many moving parts. It kind of happens back and forth and round and round and... and uh, uh, it's kind of a comedy of, of errors and so forth, just like it would be if a pair of territorial owls was, was there and uh, the good old boys drinking or not. I, I talked uh, on my visit to the area, albeit you know half a century later, but uh, I talked to uh, Trooper Ferguson who had you know, been there, and he thought that they had been drinking, and that the whole story came out of out of a container, as he put it. Uh, I don't think so, but uh, I give him his, you know, his due that he had a sense of things. A uh, lot of controversy over whether they had been drinking. Uh, Glennie wouldn't have allowed it. I don't think they could have snuck outside and <laughs> drunk. Uh, may well have been. But, but you know, so it, for me, to, I was going to say, even if they were it, drinking, I, I can't imagine that that would lead to a group delusion. You know, that seems like a stretch. You know, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And 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 I'm going to go out on a limb here, so to speak, <laughs> and suggest that probably you and I both have been rip roaring drunk, and we didn't see flying saucers and extraterrestrials. Not, not so far, and but I'm willing to continue experimenting. <laughs> not so far, or anything else much from mere alcohol. Right. Uh, Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? 
<laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. So, uh, you know, and I say that as a, you know, a, a young person from the 60s who doesn't remember all of the 60s. <laughs> and we were experimenting with various things. And I use the word experiment uh, advisedly. But in other words, if we look at, at everything in some detail, um, the best explanation I can come up with is that these hapless people uh, ran afoul of a couple of owls, and the owls ran afoul of some people, and nobody knew what the hell was going on, and owls behaved like owls, and people behaved like people, and and uh, they never, um, never kind of came to one accord. I, I think, again, the story, you know, when the, after the police come and there are all the lights and everything, of course, the owls retreated. After it got dark again and everybody was gone, they came, they came back. They're very persistent creatures. And they were not, not afraid of anything and came back, uh, as is their want. And, and that part of the story rings true to me. It's, it, it, it's an awfully extra repeat of things for a good hoax. It just, uh, there are a lot of mundane qualities to the story, including the appearance of the critter, that persuades me that if we postulate a uh, meteor shower, uh, and at the time, we're talking about and the illusion of a meteor uh, scene is just landing over there and we see some people caught off guard by some owls who have fooled people as ghosts and ants and devils and so forth uh, far back in time um, and and in this case we're associated with something extraterrestrial and while the people didn't recognize parts of it very well. You could see how, if you read a little bit between the lines, uh, my hypothesis is that it's a, a great horned owl, a pair. Yeah. And that's my solution to the case, and I I don't know if, um, if Isabel Davis would agree with me, but... I've I've tried my best. Yeah, no, I I, I don't think any solution satisfies everything that was cited that night, including I mean, well anything. But it, I think that comes very close and is completely plausible. I I would suspect that people who who disagree with your findings would probably point to things in the story, like uh, it's described as looking like a wash tub. But it, but the pictures that were drawn don't look like wash tubs either. They don't look like... No, and and, and uh, we have to be really careful there because they, they seem to have talked about the wash tub as a description of the flying saucer. But I, I, I know it was... Or, or to say it was about the size of a, uh, of a big bucket or something, but... Yeah, they were... Yes, one can, one can go through, but there are a lot of conflicting statements, a lot of things that... D- argue one way but then you can say well they that only takes you part way and then you lose ground by pointing out the rest of that but it's very difficult to imagine that um, so many elements fit so well sure uh, with with a great horned owl it is really uh, I would argue impressive very unlikely just the odds that if somebody made up something, we could find something that worked so well and had so many uh, corroborative details. The yellow eye shine, for example, the awkward walk on uh, on stick-like legs and so on and on, uh, that it floated and <laughs> seemed to perch and, and uh, so forth. It just really... Um, and that's that's the nature of what I do is to uh, uh, I've learned I learned my lesson long ago not to be too quick 
to uh, make superficial comparisons and slap it onto something, but to take plenty of time in a given case. Uh, of course, I'm accused of uh, applying owls to many cases and bears to many Bigfoot and and uh, otters to many lake monsters. But if people read my work carefully, when I'm talking about very specific cases, um, I usually have uh, quite a number of corroborative details in a particular case. And what I'm trying to do is to come up with what I call the preferred hypothesis. And this is a a term I've kind of coined, uh, or not. I may have stolen it somewhere in graduate school, but I think I made it up, but it's it's not much of a... If you didn't coin term, it, you at it, least nickeled it, right? <laughs> I nickeled it, that's right. Nick, maybe nickel and dimed it even. Uh, but it's um, the preferred hypothesis. I did this in some of my doctoral work. and I, I needed to have sort of a, how do we know when we've solved a literary mystery, I said. How do we know that? Sometimes, of course, we just have something ironclad, and that's that. And but but quite often we have competing notions, and we certainly do at Kelly. And what I try to do is is using Occam's razor to say that the hypothesis with the uh, fewest assumptions. In other words, before we get to extraterrestrials, we should see what what ter- terrestrial creatures we have. Well, we have, we can have a pair of great horned owls at our disposal there. Well, let's just see, you know, how well that works out. I think it works out just damned well. And so I would, I would argue that you would not be able to come up with another hypothesis for the creature. I doubt that you could even come up with a different variety of owl. Um, that, uh, I mean, for example, I can eliminate several uh, based on the eye shine um, and, and, and the ear tufts and so forth. They're just, we can be pretty specific. So we come down to, is it, is it a hoax or is it a great horned owl? And my money is on the great horned owl. It, it is the preferred hypothesis I maintain. And so if someone wants to depose that, they have to not, they can't just not like my hypothesis. What they have to do is find an absolutely fatal flaw in it, and I don't think there is one, or they have to have a better hypothesis with more corroborative details, not several different hypotheses or pieces of them like different three or four different creatures uh working working at the same the same farm at different different times you can't play around like that or pick and choose you have to have the simplest one with the most explanatory details and i gave it a lot of thought and i don't think that it's um very threatened that hypothesis. I am a bit biased in favor of uh, of a naturalistic explanation, and this does seem to fit. Uh, I'll tell you one other thing. I think it's interesting. I'm a hunter, I'm not an active hunter, but I, I used to be, uh, and I did a lot of bird yeah. hunting. and And one of the things that's interesting in this story is the creatures floating in the air get shot, flips, and then continues going. Right. Uh, I have seen that happen when you use a small shot on a large bird. Like uh, my grandfather's farm has a lot of crows. And, uh, you know, rather than poison them or other stuff, sometimes when I was out there, I would occasionally shoot at them uh, with insufficiently large shot. So if I had like a small bird load and I shoot at a crow that's a little bit high, I I would hit the bird would just flip in the air, recover and keep on going. And as far as I could tell, it never killed them. It just, they just got scared right. away. Right, and I think those owls might have been shot up a little bit, but but by pellets, so lots of hypotheses that are favored are not perfect. But to replace them as the fa- if, with favored status, they can't be just you harumph about them. You need to have a, 
you need to have a better one. Right. And if your if your hypothesis is that well it's uh, it's some other natural creature, then I I dare you to name it and work it through. If it's that it's some extraterrestrial creature, then you're going to lose just on the basis of Occam's razor. Uh, the person who tries that will just lose because he's having to make humongous assumptions uh, that are not necessary, which is more likely that there's a whole other realm of creatures that look remarkably like owls uh, that are coming to the planet Earth in flying saucers when there wasn't a flying saucer, apparently, and behaving in certain ways that are quite owl-like, and yet they're they're extraterrestrial. That's that's uh, not going to f- fly really <laughs> very well. Exactly. So I think there 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 are though about three categories of hypothesis here. One is the extraterrestrial one, and and uh, Isabel Davis and others are going to probably uh, you know go down clinging to that. The other is that it could be a hoax. And the third is that it's a naturalistic explanation, specifically, uh, again, uh, using the great horned owl. Uh, it's just you're just not going to be able to pull in any old kind of owl. Uh, there are problems that you need to have an owl that's common to that area and right. has to look and act like this owl. And the great horned owl is is um, very very much in play. So, and there's anyway, a psychology. True. I was going to say there's also the psychology of fear. Um, there is uh, visual limitations. We don't know what kind of vision uh, the, this family had. They, I know that they were not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know if they mm-hmm. needed glasses. I don't know how accurate they were as shots. I suspect that when the police, I don't came, think they were yeah. very good shots. I'm a little yeah. disappointed with. <laughs> Uh, although it, it, I'd be rooting for the owls. Well, we yeah, it would. Be, I love you know, owls hiding, hiding behind the fence. <laughs> uh, but I, uh, I, I'm not sure. I think they were excited. I think they're, the creatures were in movement. I think the shot into the window casing is probably uh, reveals what happens. The creature was moving. They tried to to shoot through the window, but hit the the uh, window casing. Uh, all rings true enough to me. Um, and it happened over a stretch of time, too. I mean, there, there was a lot going on. The story's compressed, but the time lapse there, uh, you know, there's people going in and out of the house. At one point, the kids are going in and out of the house, even though the people are out there shooting. There's a lot going on before they get so uptight, up so scared that they jump in the car. It was, you know, it's... Yes. So it's... Um, but. Yeah, you're doing a good job with the dynamic there, and I think your argument about the flipping of the animals is is a contribution to the argument that you could work out uh, in writing somewhere. Um, I think that's a that's a good point. I was intuiting that, but I hadn't actually maybe seen that phenomenon like you have. I think that's worth uh, a little time to zero in on it. Maybe. Yeah, I've seen it on uh, a dove field. Many times, uh, you know, and those are little bitty birds. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I'm just suspecting mm-hmm. that an owl could probably pull the same trick. That's just a, that's my guess based on other birds I've seen do it. But uh, uh, but yeah, but I, I so think, we're looking yeah, sorry, we're looking ahead. at a bird because we've got to have something that's floating uh, 40 feet um, from the naturalist hypothesis. Right, right. You know, we're not seeing a we're not seeing a raccoon. We're not seeing whatever. And and so we're seeing we're seeing a bird, the spindly legs, the uh, and and it's almost charming that they think it's uh, got really long arms and they're they're so earnestly describing some of these features and fairly accurately describing their misperception that it's really kind of I found it kind of endearing uh, because once you see a picture of a great horned owl with its wings held up over his head it looks just about like they're saying and and there are the hands these these finger-like uh five of them uh one's short but i think i think they're i I counted five 
on each wing in a picture that I that I had looking I, I you see exactly oh I see what you're I see what you're saying and several things that they uh, mentioned and you think well why did they think that that's not quite and then you look at the particular features of the great horned owl and you see oh right uh, they're seeing it in bits and pieces it's dark they're excited uh, but cumulatively, they're sort of putting together some elements that um, seem, I think, have evidential value. Just like with Flatwoods, um, you know, Mrs. May saw those terrible claws. They described the shape of the face as like ace of spades, and that heart-shaped face is very distinctive. It made a high-pitched hissing sound. That's the barn owl, and so on. I want to say something I, else about this, and that's I, I think you've mentioned the sincerity of the witnesses, and and mm-hmm. the I, I think there's a perception from some people who aren't sort of steeped in scientific skepticism that that when you come up with explanations like this, you're, you're somehow denigrating the people who are making these claims, and I, I don't think that's the case, and I, I'm sure you would. Uh, I, I don't yeah, either. Yeah. I, I think I think there are people who do denigrate them. And those are the debunkers and the dismissers who oftentimes will suggest, oh, they were probably drunk. And I, you know me, I, I resent and resist that approach. Um, I'm usually uh, quite respectful to people. I listen to them. And I, yes, at some point I may occasionally kind of caricature a finding or something a little bit. Um, but... Uh, by and large, I listen to people when I can. I give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm not quick to suggest that something is a hoax just because I can't explain it. I try to, you know, not be in a hurry and just say, well, let's think a little bit more. What are we basically, what's this creature basically like? What are they, what category would it be in? And so on. And if you do that, Bit by bit, you you come up with um, a pretty clear picture of the great horned owl, and I prefer to um, to to that approach, um, realizing, of course, someone could could uh, come up with a fanciful uh, animal and and be a hoax. But in my experience, uh, when you put all the elements together and do a sort of holistic study of everything, uh, trying to get some idea of how did it start, in this case, with an actual meteor, I think. Uh, Very credible during the Perseid shower, and there were other people who saw meteors. Very credible. And and describing that illusion, and I think that's that's a good starting point to say, well, let's just let's just build on that. And then they, they saw a creature and they, um, they were predisposed to think and they were caught off guard by it. And most people, again, have not seen uh, an owl of any kind at night under sudden surprising circumstances. Right, exactly. People think they, oh, I know what an owl looks like. Yeah, you do because you see them in children's picture books and stuff. But in the 1950s, uh, yes, you knew what an owl was, but you you probably hadn't seen one, and you probably didn't have much of an idea of of what they might look like under some odd circumstances and surpri- suddenly surprising and frightening you and scaring you. And um, so, I think all those things taken together, uh, we we make a judgment about a case, and uh, and there's no absolute DNA certainty. In such a case, but True. there is a preponderance of the evidence and uh, multiple uh, bits of corroborative evidence that persuade me. I, I agree, Joe, and I, I really think you did a good job on this. I want to say that I, I think one one other thing I want to throw out is, I, and I'll I, I probably make some comments when I close out the episode, but the uh, when the authorities came to investigate. Even if they had hit these owls and left bird feathers everywhere, nobody was looking for that because everybody was describing metallic, silvery-looking, you know, creatures. Oh, exactly, right. exactly. 
It, it, there, there would be nothing really to have found on the roof or the ground that you wouldn't just uh, a casual look. You, what, what are you looking for? Bigfoot tracks? Um, and in, in fact, if I think if you and I had been called to that the next day and it really had a little time to, you know, speculate as we have, uh, we would have gone and looked for things like owl pellets in in areas of uh, out on the fringes to see if maybe we could find uh, and we would look for for feathers we would look for some things to see whether there might have been um, population of owls in the area but um, they don't leave obvious traces uh, an, an owl walking in your yard is not leaving any kind of obvious traces and so people weren't looking for feathers and owl pellets and and the like and uh, bird footprints uh, mashing the grass and so they didn't see anything but i don't that doesn't uh, I, there was no flying saucer because that was an illusion and the other critters had fled I think that is a very plausible explanation, and I, I hate to say it as much as I'd like it to be monsters. I, I think it's more plausible than monsters, Joe. Well, I, you know, I, I, um, I often say this in a particular matter. I say that I have some good news and some bad news. The bad news is it wasn't really monsters. The good news is nobody listens to me. <laughs> I don't think I've heard you say that before. That's great. <laughs> Story of my life. <laughs> well, and and you know, I I do like to. Um, uh, I, I, again, I try to be respectful of people on the other side, and uh, sometimes it pays off. My wife and I were down in Pennsylvania a couple of years ago, and uh, we we went to see a Frank Lloyd Wright masterpiece, Falling Water. And I said, let's stay in a cabin and let's do a little bigfooting. And there's some stories in the area and stuff. So uh, she was, you know, she's always uh, ready to do anything like that. So we did that, and we were went into the uh, the campground's office, and there were some people there finishing up, and we waited. They left, and we did our business, got our keys and everything. Walked outside. Well, the f- first group was waiting for us. There are four people, two couples, are waiting for us. And the guy came up and he said, excuse me, are you Joe Nickel? And I said, I, I am and I can prove it. And I handed him, handed out wooden nickels. <laughs> and uh, they said, well, you know, we um, we know what you do and we, we like the way you approach things. You're on the other side, but we don't think of you as an enemy and... Um, you know, and and I joined right into the spirit of that, and I said, you know, I often feel more akin to you guys than I do fellow skeptics who are of the debunker stripe because they wouldn't be out here. And they said, we give you that. You you go in the haunted houses and you're out. We we can witness that you're out here, and so on. And we had a nice, friendly talk, and. Um, in fact, one of the guys even admitted, I'm becoming more skeptical. <laughs> I said, well, don't let me rush you. Take your time. Exactly. And, <laughs> Ease you into know. it. See how it feels. <laughs> but uh, I, I like the idea that um, that sincere people can look at things. Those who call other people names and are nasty, and on both sides. I've I've had people really nasty to me from, you know, the UFO side or some of the other sides, but I've I've also had some very good uh, responses in all areas. Um, people friendly to me and you know just say, okay, we disagree, but we we share some interests and we both uh, you know will admit if somebody's got a good point and and uh, so on. So I I hope we continue to do that and little by little maybe. People change their minds a bit, and uh, skeptics can do a better job by being a little more open-minded and not being so quick 
to jump to conclusions, and believers can listen a little more to the hard facts or alleged facts of the skeptics, and we'll all be better for it. I believe so. I believe right now, in this day and age, having the critical thinking tools to filter out what's true and what's not true or what's real and what's implausible is really undervalued and way more important than it ever has been. So, yeah, absolutely. Exactly, exactly. And and there's so much fun in uh, in doing the work if you really are interested in trying to solve a mystery. I, I don't find it drudgery to spend hours looking at uh, at owl traits or or reading over descriptions of shots fired and trying to sort them out or whatever rather than sort of a woe is me and oh how boring this is and I'm sick and tired no I relish it I find it uh, this is this is the the game is afoot Sherlock said and and um uh, it's it's worth doing, and we can actually much of the time enjoy doing it, enjoy the the quest, and and uh, if we come up with something, um, we can be pleased with it. It is it is so much fun. That's that's why I enjoy this kind of work. And and I know I when we started this or we planned this, I I, I was going to try to get you in and out quickly, but I, I feel like I could still keep talking to you for another hour, and I, I know you don't have time for it. <laughs> Well, I better go and let you go, so it's been good talking with you. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and you just heard an interview with CSI investigator Joe Nickel on his research into the Kentucky Goblins of 1955. I think in these first two parts of our research into this case, we've talked about the environment in which the sightings emerged. This was not the first story of little space people to hit the news during this time. In fact, the stories seemed to be in the air sometimes literally. Prior to the sightings of these creatures, something had been seen in the sky, there's good reason to believe it was a meteor, that had primed the witnesses to at least be thinking about visitors from another planet. Two of the witnesses were outside and came back inside talking about having seen these creatures, again priming everyone for something unusual. And then they saw the creatures themselves. In this interview, Joe outlined many parallels between the descriptions made by the witnesses to great horned owls. He admits that the owls don't look much like the drawings made by the sketch artist, but the individual details mentioned in the accounts match up quite nicely with a pair of great horned owls. We'll talk more about how one might reconcile the differences in the American Goblins Part 3, which I hope to bring you quite soon. Monster Talks an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on the show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Hi, my name is Barry Carr, and I'm here with Tom Flynn and Jim Wonderdown talking about the uh, upcoming SciCon conference this October in Las Vegas. So, uh, Tom, Jim, what are you, uh, you looking forward to coming out to SciCon? I cannot wait. I will be hosting the disco party on Saturday night, and it's, is it a zombie disco party? If you want to dress as a zombie, that's fine. That's what we're billing it as, a costume party, so come as you like. Yeah, and uh, we're actually going to have cash prizes and uh, dancing and drinks. Is it true that the grand prize will be a big bowl of brains? Well, leaving the brains and the zombies aside, this is a uh, conference with some heavyweights in the skeptical community. For instance, we have Richard Dawkins, Lawrence Krauss, James Randi, Eugenie Scott. The list actually goes on and on. We have almost 40 speakers coming or more. 
We have workshops, of course, entertainment, as we mentioned. Anything you particularly want to see? Uh, my dear friend uh, Richard Wiseman will be here, also from the UK, author of Quirkology. I can't wait to see him. And don't forget Richard Saunders from Australia. It's going to be Richard's busting out all over. It's the richness of Richard's. <laughs> it absolutely yeah. is. I'll be gambling, too, at some point. No, no, skeptics weekend. do not gamble. I, skeptics well, don't gamble. I we do. know the odds. We I don't have, do if, that. If my experience last year is any indication, no, no. skeptics do not gamble. Skeptics win. I have a Some system. Skeptics. Harry, I have a system that is guaranteed to win. I'm going to grab a stack of chips and run. <laughs> there That's you go. Yeah. Okay, the uh, New Yorker writer Maria Konnikova is going to be oh, receiving yeah. the uh, Ballas Award for critical thinking for her most recent book. Right, The Confidence Game. Yeah, Maria was a speaker last year. She spoke about The Confidence Game last year. This year, she's talking about her new book, which is about luck. Ah. So what, what better? What right? better, what better talk See, about yeah. luck? She'll vindicate me. The Skeptical Toolbox people will be there. Ray Hyman, Jim Elcock, Harriet Hall. And speaking of skeptics groups that are coming, we have the Skeptics Guide to the Universe. The whole uh, the whole show, the whole crew is coming this year. It seems a little skeptic heavy, don't you think, this conference? This is the skeptics heavyweight event of the year. It so, does yes. not get better than it this. It does not get better than this. So we hope to see you there. It's uh, October 26th to the 29th at the Excalibur Hotel. It's the, the one that looks like the big castle. You know, you'll see it when you fly into the airport you see the towers rapunzel's there it's the one that looks like the walt disney opium dream so come check us out in las vegas monster talk theme musics by pete stealing monkeys thanks again for listening that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content.